Welcome to Friends of the Forest, episode nine. I'm your host, Brad Whipple. Joining me today is Shannon Moran from England. She's the host of Postcards from the Galaxy's Edge. Shannon, how's it going today? I'm doing great. Very happy to have you on. You're my first guest that is non-US based. So oh, it's a very, awesome. <laughs> very good achievement. We're going international, folks. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I brought Shannon on today. Uh, we're going to be discussing special effects and visual effects in Star Wars. There was a recent, uh, a recent thing hosted by the Academy going over how Rogue One was shot and just from the perspective of Industrial Light and Magic and how they've evolved through the years. So that really started to get me thinking about how visual effects in general through Star Wars has transformed. So we're going to be really going over today from the original inception of Star Wars to the current state of it. What have been the most significant contributions of visual effects from our favorite franchise? But before we get started, I would like to hear from Shannon. Shannon, do you want to tell people about postcards from the Galaxy's Edge and uh, what you really bring with that and why they should listen? Uh, sure. So yeah, uh, postcards from the Galaxy's Edge is fairly new. Um, I think I'm only on about six episodes and pretty much how it works is uh, every broadcast and sometimes it'll be either a podcast or a live stream. I kind of do a little bit of both. Um, it comes from a canon planet or, or moon. I'm finding some of these places <laughs> are moons. Like I didn't realize Jeddah was a moon, not a planet, you oh, know? Okay. I did not know um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and then I recently have like a kind of a, a I, I call him my navigator, but uh, his name's Jerry, aka Canon Junkie. He will give some Canon facts about that said planet, and then pretty much we'll have a little brief discussion, and then kind of cover the news, um, do some polls. I think, unfortunately, as we'll kind of talk into a little bit later with my day job, it's I wish I could say there are weekly episodes. There's definitely at least two episodes a month but i i try to make it what's what's the saying um quant quality over quantity but um yeah and i and i also do try to kind of bring kind of like a post-production visual effect perspective on things as well and on on a side i also do uh game streaming but it's not called postcards from the galaxy's edge it's called shenanigan plays and i do like star wars game streaming so predominantly at the moment it's battlefront 2 soon hopefully it will be jedi fallen order and the new lego star oh, wars yeah. game also have sometimes like a retro uh, star wars game night right now doing knights of the old republic and i'm hoping eventually maybe i can get some people in the chat and we can actually make the decisions together what my character says and does and things like that just to kind of mix yeah. it up because i'm i'm unfortunately light side to a fault so <laughs> it, it's kind of nice to have someone go oh no you should say this okay see what happens but <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty much about uh, postcards oh and it's um i'm pretty sure most people are kind of figuring this out but it's two easter eggs it's the late great carrie fisher's first book was called postcards from the edge and then, of course, Galaxy's Edge that has opened up. So I also kind of put those two together. So it, yes. is, it is the most meta podcast title <laughs> I've seen in a while. It's so good. As soon as um, I said, I was like, follow. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, it so it just it just hit me one day traveling on the train from London to Brighton because I I live in a, a seaside town called Brighton and it's about an hour and a half uh, commute and it just hit me and I was just like, oh, and I mean, the minute I got in my head, I was like, I am getting that URL right now, buying that. <laughs> so it's just like, okay. <laughs> you pull a J.J. Abrams and write it on a napkin because that's the only thing you got right available to you at Pretty that much. moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, I mean, we were talking right before the the recording started, and we're we're both new podcasts here, so we're just really getting through. And once you find that right name and the the name that really rings rings a bell, it's you got to take it because <laughs> there's so many oh, yes. Star Wars podcasts nowadays. And uh, I think I'm you've... still finding them. I keep thinking yeah. I'm following everybody on inst or not Instagram, pardon me, on Twitter, and then I'll see another one, and I'm like, oh, okay, follow yeah. that one. <laughs> Because it's interesting, there'll be so many different perspectives, and it just also shows what's the beauty of this franchise that we all love, that it could just be so many different perspectives, and yeah. Yeah, definitely. So make sure you guys all go check out her Twitter. She's at, or at from Galaxy's Edge on Twitter, and Shenanigan Plays once again on Twitch. So uh, without further ado, let's get right into today's topic. I was sort of forced to start my own company in order to make the movie. And uh, that's really how ILM got started in the first place. And I knew that I wanted something that, that was going to sort of, I had to push the limits of the technology of the film medium in order to make this movie work. Because I couldn't have just spaceships slowly moving through the frame. I wanted to be able to pan with them, move with them. To get that vocabulary added to my lexicon, uh, I needed to invent some new technology, which was what we did at, at ILM. So when we think of Star Wars, we obviously think of the, the visual effects that it has brought to the film industry. It's been such a, a leader and an innovator. And that's why I think in the 70s, when it first came out, that's why it captivated so many audiences. But recently, there was a panel called Galactic Innovations, Star Wars and Rogue One, presented by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So this was a two-day stream. If you didn't catch it, unfortunately, it's not available anymore, which I unfortunately found out when I was trying to take notes on it after for this podcast. And I was like, oh, I cannot go back and watch it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, but some of the guests included Ben Burt, John Dykstra, Richard Edlin, Harrison Ellenshaw. There's a bunch of people included on that list. It was hosted by Kiri Hart, who used to be the VP of development and development lead of the Lucasfilm Story Group. So she was... She moderated the panel very well. It was really good mm. to see her back in the in the limelight for a little bit. And something that stuck out to me was when Richard Edlin said the the true magic of industrial light and magic is the people. And to me, that was just such a powerful message, and it made me want to talk about visual effects in Star Wars. So, uh, Shannon, what do you what do you got to say about how Star Wars has been a has truly been the the leading force, quote you know pun intended, uh, for for visual effects <laughs> in, in uh, entertainment. I mean, to be honest, I mean, it really, I mean, even outside of Star Wars franchises, ILM has revolutionized a lot of things. Like, I believe, uh, let's talk about the Terminator, you know, the the liquid that was mm -hmm. ILM. I mean, it's interesting because I, I will, full disclosure, I have never worked at ILM. That's on the bucket list. But I've worked at um, three other very big predominant visual effect companies and it's interesting, you tell, you ask any common person who isn't in the industry, a visual effect company, they will say ILM because it's just such a household name. And I mean, it's the OG or the goat, as you know, the kids <laughs> are saying. Um, <laughs> but um, in terms of like visual effects, like it's not even just Star Wars. I mean, ILM, I mean, one of my other favorite franchises, Jurassic Park, it, oh, literally yeah. those as the story goes, the dinosaurs were all supposed to be hand, like, you know, Ray Harryhausen, you know, stop motion animated. And then it was the geniuses at ILM that was like, Steven, come here. 
sit down, <laughs> watch this, and just saw the white the walk what they call a walk cycle, which is just kind of sometimes it's like three seconds of you know a, a full just one walk cycle of the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And that's actually why there's a little bit of an Easter egg when he says, you know, what do you think? And they're like, oh, we're out of a job. Don't you mean extinct? That actually was said by the artists that were doing the stop motion animation because they're like, well, crap, we're out of a job. Luckily, again, those engineers at ILM was like, no, 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 no. We can still use your skills. We will have you still do the hand animation, but here's the brilliance. Those little rigs will now send data to a computer so that can help, you know, all the 3D artists add it. So basically it was still emerging of the skills. And I think that's what's very brilliant about, and I think it's what got, has me so excited about kind of this new era of uh, ILM and, and Disney Star Wars and things like that. I mean, everyone that's fair, have your opinions on it but is that beautiful balance of the special effects and the visual effects um and if it's okay i, I want to kind of explain the difference between the two because i think sometimes yeah. special effects and visual effects the term is used interchangeably and that's fine because it, it, it's easy and i mean heck the categories and um you know oscars <laughs> and baftas <laughs> and things they keep changing the title so right. i can understand the confusion um special effects or SFX will be anything that is on set, anything physical that will be an explosion. That will be um, like a puppet that will be anything physical on set. Whereas visual effects, as the name says, will be anything kind of done via a computer after set. Sometimes that could be something as simple as um, kind of what they call facial augmentations where, you know, we can animate a puppet to close its eyes when it didn't on set for some reason, or it can be the full blown, you know, we're seeing the Death Star eclipse, you know, the sun before it attacks Jeddah. I mean, it can be pretty spectrum is pretty big in terms of visual effects. So that's kind of the difference between the two. Yeah, that's a very important distinguish distinguisher or distinguishment to make. Um, because I think if you're not really heavily involved in the the film industry, those kinds of things might not you, you don't think about them all the time. So it's it's nice to really flesh that out. And I think with with ILM, they've just continued to push the boundaries. And I think you mentioned having Disney Star Wars again. I think a lot of people overlook really what they're doing visually and, and mm. with special and visual effects because we, we keep thinking about story so much just because, but you know, naturally, because we don't know what's going to happen next with all these movies and plots. And that's a lot of what the speculation is going on, but it's oh, nice of to, course. Take, to, to take a minute and really appreciate how they continue to keep pushing those boundaries. Like when you think of ILM, they're, they're completely imaginary. It was started by, you know, quote unquote hippies, just, you know, sitting in 135 degree heat in Los Oof. Angeles. And, <laughs> and this is something they touched on during the presentation. And they had a, they had a tub that was with, filled with cold water and they would all just jump inside of it when it got too hot. And then they had this giant water slide to the point where the 20th century Fox executives would drive up to the studio, just kind of sit there idling in their car and then drive away. Cause they're like, this can't be right. Like, where are we right now? Like, yeah, this is a bunch of crazy people. Like, what are they doing? And they're just blowing up ship. So the, the spirit of ILM has continued to stay there and, and be present. And I love how they continue to push the boundaries. Um, one of the most important, just kind of to start in terms of their contributions to film, 
you got to start with the Dijkstra flex. Yes, yes. So that's going to be the first thing we talk about here. Uh, The Dijkstra flex. Now, that was how they shot all the ships. So before... Uh, before the star before Star Wars came out, you had Star Trek, obviously, and the way that they did motion control, uh, which wasn't really new at the time of Star Wars, it, it was just that ILM advanced it. So Star Trek had motion control where the the ships were the ones being moved inside the camera. That's how they did that visual effect. Um, but when, and they were upside down. Yes, but when uh, Star Wars came along, they wanted to innovate it in a different way. They didn't just want to do the same exact thing before because they really felt like they wanted to get all different ax- axes of rotation within the shot itself. So you can go above the ship, below the ship, around the ship, seven different axes. Um, so what the Dijkstra Flex did was it kept the ship stationary within the frame, but the camera itself was mounted on a rig that would move along the same exact path uh, to 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 film that element. And for every element of a shot that they filmed, it created a new plate for that shot. So for instance, what they showed in the, in the presentation was an X-Wing blowing up above the Death Star. So they basically had to do one exact path, uh, film that path um, of the X-Wing and then of the explosion and then of the laser and then of the background. And then they would composite all of those different plates together to create the final shot so it's a lot of jargon (laughs) Um, but it's a very it was a very complicated process at the time to the point where George Lucas and John Dykstra butted head so much that um, you know I think he fired him at one point and then brought him back (laughs) he's like as you do yeah Um, (laughs) but you know Dykstra had worked at the Institute of Urban and Regional Development so he was he had originally worked with somebody there that worked with some of those shots uh and then he brought that technology over to to lucasfilm with the help of um, alva miller and jeffrey jeffress so uh so shannon speaking of the dykstra flex what do you really think is the is the most important elements of bringing that into star wars and and why do you think it was such an innovation for for that technology at the time i think what really helped was also having, cause when you were mentioning like the, the, the X-Wing and you know, the TIE fighters and everything was George was quite, I think, brilliant in terms of the editing and the pace to look at footage from like world war two dogfights and things. Yeah. Because also what helped with that star Trek, the ships felt so far away and you just, it just didn't feel intense. Whereas when that, you know, that, trench run and everything i mean you're there it is boom boom i mean of course everything as you can tell is like a collaboration of all the disciplines because of course it's great with john williams music and the sound effects and everything so obviously it's showing that scene is a lot of uh conglomerates together to make something work however by being able to do those movements one it made it feel like you are right there and you're just like you're like oh wow and it zips past and two it just i don't know i just it not to quote him, but it made it faster and more intense and it worked. <laughs> like it just got to throw that one in there. <laughs> it really did. And I wasn't even planning that, but yes, it, it really just, I think that's what helped. It, it just, it felt like it was real. Cause again, that optical illusion just, uh, yeah, I, and it's what's exciting. And if you were going to touch on this, I apologize if I'm jumping no, here. No, go ahead. You're is good. they're doing it for the Mandalorian. Like, yes. For those who weren't in the panel at Celebration, 
I think it was shown on the live stream, so I don't think I'm breaking. It actually cut out, I think. Oh, so should I not talk about it then? Uh, you could talk about I think we could talk about how it's being made. I think that's fine. There's okay. no like, embargo on it or anything. Right. So I basically, John Favreau, who is, I love him. He's so, so on it on just, yeah, he's great. Um, basically, they're using that technique to do the ships of the Mandalorian by kind of again that balance that's going to be like the word for this podcast is <laughs> balance of the special effect camera technique because nowadays in visual effects you could totally do all that in maya in the you know the, the various softwares and probably yeah. get the same outcome but just knowing that that is an actual model it's an actual camera pass and then adding a little bit of visual effects for like the you know the burn you know the afterburns and the engine you know it's just it's yeah it was very exciting it was the visual effects person in me was literally gripping my seat going right. this is awesome <laughs> <laughs> um i think it's cool that that technique is still very relevant to today almost what 42 years 43 years later mm -hmm. yeah no it's it's been a while and i think the important part of it too is they were using they were using mod models of the ships including in the mandalorian now they're not using a digital ship they're yep. they created models of all different shapes and sizes so when they were making those passes repeatedly with the dykes reflex they were shooting a real live ship that made it that's just what made it have that used universe feel, which is what George called it. He wanted the whole movie to have a used universe feeling like, you know, it was worn down and been through battle. It was real. You could, it's tangible. And I think that's why people love Star Wars so much when it first came out. Cause it just completely blew away all of ex expectations when, when mm -hmm. people saw that first trailer in theaters uh, in December of, of 76. So, and the, and the nice thing too, is when they had multiple ships, and you're shooting all of them, making those same passes. It looks like all the ships are following each other too, which was exactly. the which was the important part. So they all lined up, and it didn't really look like really jagged or anything like that. Yes. Like it didn't look out of sync, and so it just made the movie feel so satisfying to watch visually. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 it also uh, won the helped Star Wars win the Visual Effects Award at the Oscars. So that was one of its first shining achievements. I mean, we they really laid the groundwork Industrial Light and Magic. And uh, it's a pretty amazing process. And I, I, do, I am glad they are bringing it back for The Mandalorian because I think, like you said, Jon Favreau is brilliant and I think he knows what he's doing and he understands why we love Star Wars. And it's for those, for those mix of, of doing what you can digitally when you, when you should, but also making sure to stick true to how Star Wars was originally made and yeah. getting that same feeling from people. Well, what's brilliant about John Favreau is, and what I find actually quite fascinating is, I was working with him, not obviously directly, but I was working at the company that did the Lion King, and he was doing the Mandalorian at the same time. So it was funny. He would have his morning with us and his afternoon with the Mandalorian. So his head, he is literally in the morning and full digital CG world of the Lion King, then going to the Mandalorian, which is all practically practical well some of this is speculation so please i i don't want to think anyone's thinking i'm leaking anything because i'm not but the mandalorian is definitely more very practical yeah you know on set you know effects with a little bit of visual and to be able to just switch between the two and know 
I think what I'm really finding fascinating is knowing when to use what, where, and knowing mm-hmm. the tools. Cause he's very much a student. He loves learning. Oh, okay. So that's how this tool works. Okay. So I can put that in my little toy box. So I know, okay, for this project that will work for this, but it won't work for that project. And just, yeah, it's, he's, he's a really cool dude. And I, I really, I'm excited to see some old school techniques brought to the Mandalorian. And I think it will help feel because obviously it's taking place in between, you know, well, when is it taking place? Is it after Return, Return of the, the Jedi? Jedi. Yeah. Great. Okay. So it is that between, you know, the, you know, the Ridge and the sequel trilogy. So yeah. that's, then that's cool. So yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that they're doing that technique. And I think the good thing too is with television coming out, obviously it's going to have smaller budgets than the blockbuster movies. So it's almost Mm. forcing people like John Favreau to find more practical ways to do things that aren't just solely digital effects that are going to cost a lot. Yeah. So to do something in a garage somewhere with a Dijkstra flux camera and you get just as good of a shot. We saw the final shot in the footage Mm. of, you know, because it led up to showing us the behind the scenes and we finally see it. Everybody in the crowd just screamed when they saw it. Yeah. Oh, that's the shot we were just watching. It doesn't even look like it was pra- like a uh, miniature at all. Yeah. And it's, it's just wild. So something else to note about the Dexter Flex too, before we continue moving on, obviously I'm sure a lot of you have seen the, the behind the scenes photos of the blue screen. So they did use a blue screen uh, as the backdrop for those miniatures. And, and really like one of the most important things about the Dexter Flex too is, is prior to industrial light and magic creating this camera, um, like, you know, move, uh, things like Star Trek, they really only did two elements for a single shot. You might have just the backgrounds and then the ship. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of it. But now Lucasfilm's working with between 60 to 120 elements in one single shot. I mean, you think about the asteroid fields in yes. the original trilogy. Oh. Think about how many passes that they had to do for single shots. And then I was watching, I think you can find it. Mark Hamill narrates the behind the scenes footage. I believe it's on the Empire Strikes Back, like original DVD box set, maybe like the silver Mm. one that came out about like 2004 or something. But they had to do a pass for like almost all the asteroids and the ships and the lasers and the TIE fighters and the Millennium Falcon. I mean, like right there, that's at least 10 elements in a single shot. And when you put all those into a printer, if something goes wrong, you got to redo all of those. (laughs) Well, yeah, because that's 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 actually a really good thing you touch on that. And even me, like now I have more of an appreciation for those scenes as a kid. I was like, hey, this is cool. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, now as someone who's been in the industry and kind of knows how it all works, it's like, oh, wow. And that was printed on film. You know, yeah. nowadays everything's so digital and we can maybe touch on this again, kind of, if we like start going into the prequels and things, but yeah. you know, on film, it's more permanent and mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. If it's not done right it, or not exposed, right. Or you get, you know, something out of line, you've ruined, it's a toast and it's very precise and that's the other thing. So yeah, I bring, that's a very good example. Cause I, I mean, yeah, it made me perk up like, Oh yeah, that's insane. Yeah. And in a, a den of geek interview from 2008, actually they interviewed John Dykstra and he was saying, you know, one of the problems that they always had was it getting the, the film was getting scratched every time they put it through the printer. So it always forced them to go back and, and do new composites. And you, and you never truly got the composite that you wanted because a certain element was getting scratched every time. So and it just Ooh. made the made the process very difficult. And I think that's why the making of the A New Hope was so turbulent because it was just such a new technology at the time. 
uh, and the fact that they got out what they got out of it is is just incredible. It's it's really just like a a miracle at that time to to have the technology they did. So some other uh, moving on from the Dijkstra flex rotoscoping is obviously a big technology that was used in the in the original trilogy. Now that was when you actually take a uh, a live action shot and you project it onto a glass plate and then you manually manually trace uh, a visual effect element over it. So this is what they did for lightsabers. Yes. And they also did this with matte paintings. So again, this is another instance where you're projecting a live action image and you got to go frame by frame manually tracing uh, these visual effect shots on top of the live action shot you're getting. And if it's just slightly bit off, you run into that same problem. And they had, I believe his name is Harrison Ellenshaw. He was one of the original matte painters on the original trilogy. He was the one that did the shot from Return of the Jedi when the Emperor first gets there and you have all the troopers in the hangar. Um, and he yes. also, yeah, and he also did the one with the Millennium Falcon and the Death Star from A New Hope. And he was showing how he had taped up all the different areas and he was painting around them. And then they had to take that uh, that new painting that he had and then project it back onto the original live action shot. And it has to perfectly seamlessly match to maintain that sense of believability with the shot, which is just crazy. So uh, with your with your experience in visual effects, like how how different is that now with with digital doing something like a matte painting or, or backgrounds for a movie. Well, it, it's interesting because digital matte painting, it, it's kind of the same concept, but now there's a new, well, I say new, um, it's kind of come around, I think in like the last five, six years on what they call deep compositing. Um, sometimes you'll see it in some breakdown reels where um, I know I saw this in frame stores, I think Iron Man 3 reel, where there's like fire and they show that here's all the passes, but they even show that they've been moved in such a way that it's not technically a 2D image. It's still like 3D and -hmm. things. So it's interesting that it's still, the process still applies. And I mean, DMP is some of the coolest stuff. So DMP, digital matte painting, um, it still is very relevant today. I mean, it was in things like, you know, Prometheus and the Martian and and things like that. So it's still very much a relevant thing. Again, just kind of like, it's just now been digitized but then on top of that there's now also two different ways you can have the 2d but sometimes depending on the complexity of the shot you need it to almost then also be like a 3d digital matte painting so these flames and things for example will move and yeah it's and i'm not i don't it's like a very general broad and if there's any compositors that are listening to this i apologize i hope i'm not (laughs) butchering it because compositing is just it's like I always say it's like the calculus of post-production, whereas editing, the edit, like offline (laughs) editing, which is my original background, I always say is like algebra, A plus B equals C. You do this, you get the timings right, you're done. You're on a timeline. Compositing and nuke and things like that, that's some of the softwares that are used. It's all like what they call node-based. And yes, it's, it's very much like you can do six different ways to get the same outcome it it just oh yeah <laughs> so hopefully yeah. that kind of, <laughs> that kind of answers it it's a bit broad and i i apologize but yeah yeah hopefully that You're good. Your we're, we're given the crash course version of of visual and special <laughs> effects on this podcast because we're just winging it shannon do you do you think with 
with Star Wars, the original trilogy, before we move on to the, the prequel era, do you think if Star Wars wasn't made in the 70s and the original trilogy was actually made in, let's say, the 90s or even the early 2000s, do you think, I mean, obviously the landscape of visual and special effects would be a lot different, but do you think it would have had the same effect if Star Wars came out today with the kind of technology that we have? Or was part of the magic of the original trilogy not only the mythos behind Star Wars, but also the production value of it? I think it's the the latter. I, I genuinely think it was one of those, the just the right place at the right time. I feel if Star Wars wasn't in the 70s, but like you said, like the 80s or 90s, we wouldn't have had Avatar yet. We wouldn't have had Pirates of the Caribbean yet. Like all these, because like a lot, um, I just actually recently did a podcast uh, with my one of my work colleagues uh, that we were going over like the history of visual effects, which is actually quite short. It's only about 100 years. And some of the biggest revolutions have happened from about 2000 on. Um, but, but a lot of that is because ILM had really set some major stepping stones. So yeah, basically we would still be kind of more in the nineties visual effects today if we hadn't had star Wars in the seventies. Um, and then it happened. It also, I think worked out great talking about the mythos and things that it came out in such a, a time, a very pivotal time, you know, as history tells us, um, you know, Vietnam, was still prominent and kind of winding down. And so cinema was very much very bleak and, mm -hmm. you know, and Star Wars was just this very different. And then taking themes like Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, you know, it, it just, it just, yeah, it, it just kind of was that. And I, I also kind of what I like as well is I love seeing the behind the scenes of how this film struggled so much mm -hmm. to be, now it's one of the most successful franchises out there. So I do, I, I, to answer your question, I genuinely think it just was right place, right time. And just the, the stars had aligned for lack yeah, of a better term. Yeah, it was the perfect storm. And Thank you. When, yes. you, when you think about movies nowadays, you go to the, you go to the movies and you watch the new Marvel movie and yeah, the Marvel movies are absolutely killing it. And there's some really great sequences that come up visually the best thing I can think of is Far From Home, which came out recently, which I don't want to spoil anything in it. But some of the visual effects in it are just, especially for a Spider-Man movie, I was blown away. It was so amazing. Mm. But there's also a certain plateau that you kind of hit nowadays with movies where it's like, okay, yeah, that's pushing the boundaries. But, you know, it's not anything like really like, wow, this is really changing culture. I think Star Wars Correct. is actually continuing to do that. Um, and I think those kinds of changes take time because it really takes time to find a new technology and develop it and make it work. And I think like, for instance, the Hobbit tried out the 48 frames per second oh, don't, HDR, don't. <laughs> which that, that really didn't work out too well. No. People felt that was too soap opera-y and it was like, this doesn't really feel like a movie. It's too, it's too immersive. We want to go back to, you know, 24 frames a second. Um, uh, but so, so I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Exactly. If it came out today, it wouldn't have had the same effect on audience. If it came out, the, it, it was the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're all so happy for it. And I think that's why people oh, yeah. gravitate I mean, towards the original trilogy as well. I think to be honest that, um, and this could, if, if you want, could tie into kind of now going into the prequel trilogy, I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for George Lucas. Cause the other thing is on top of visual effects, industrial light and magic there's also revolutions in theater because you mm -hmm. had thx you had skywalker sound 
And he basically, I, I'm really, sl you know, slapping myself on the wrist here, but he created the first, what we call non-linear editing system, which is the digital form of an editing software. So everybody nowadays is doing like iMovie or Adobe Premiere or mm -hmm. Avid in really professional senses or Final Cut used to be king for a while. Um, those are all thanks to George Lucas and some other people. Again, so sorry that the names are escaping me tonight, but um, that that's how I have a career because of it. Like I luckily was just about five, six years before, you know, offline editing became a thing where everything is brought in digitally into a computer so I can look at all the rushes or the dailies or whatever terminology you want to work, you know, use whatever shots were filmed that day, create edits and assemblies and then output them to this digital files and things. So it yeah, there's definitely a lot of kind of renaissance that went on from those 70s, 80s and 90s. That's very fascinating. That really has revolutionized the uh, post-production industry for sure. Right. And, and one last point too, I want to touch on, I'm actually reading how star Wars conquered the universe by Chris Taylor. Have you, have you read that book before? No, I haven't. Whew, this is a good one. It is honestly gives you one of the most comprehensive behind the scenes making of stories I've ever read. Nice. I'll have so to props to props to Chris Taylor, but something that he mentions really is, is because George Lucas struck gold it, it was truly its own gold rush in entertainment. Everybody else wanted a piece of a piece mm. of science fiction. And it really led to people like James Cameron, who was mm -hmm. a truck driver, quitting his truck driving job and saying, I'm going to go in the movies. I'm going to do this. And he created the Terminator and he created you know, all these other great movies, Avatar now. And it also sparked movies like Aliens, which obviously is a huge, huge movie back in the day. Yes. So it, George Lucas really started the groundwork. Everybody wanted to try to get in on the science fiction game. And if not for for this this crazy idea of a movie working out, I don't even think science I don't even know if science fiction would be the same today in general. No, that's not a just, fair point. Not just yeah. visual effects, but just the jo the genre itself. No, that's very that's a very fair like observation. Absolutely. Yeah. So the original trilogy has a special place in our heart, and we waited so long, waited sixteen years. <laughs> To finally get Misa on the screen, the the, the great prequels, and yes. I know obviously the prequels have a have a storied history of originally they came out and people were kind of like, is this really Star Wars? And I think now looking back on it, we at, at least the people I talk to, we've kind of all just grown to accept that the prequels were a, a rather weird time, but there are so many great things to appreciate about it, and it was still George's vision, and that's something we kind of have to just live with and appreciate yeah. every aspect of them that we can definitely as a star wars fan you can have your issues with them but it's kind of like it's kind of like family members or your parents like you have issues with your parents sometimes but you still love them at the end of the Correct. day you know <laughs> well here, here's my question to you how old were you when they came out i was four years old and i remember sitting in the very back of the theater the first time i saw that star wars yellow logo pop up on the screen during the opening crawl like that's the only thing i remember about that movie yeah in theaters was the crawl and that's it well because th this is what's quite fascinating this is why i wanted to ask you because i remember the prequels coming out quite vividly because there was a um 
there was a commercial that came out that I remember because like right before the prequels came out, they re-released the special edition. Mm -hmm. I want to say maybe just like a year or two prior. I know I was in sixth grade. So it was 1996 when the special editions came out. And I remember there was an advert that said for a whole generation, they've experienced star Wars like this. And it was a TV. And then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden the X wing just comes zipping out and it was like star Wars, the special editions. So that's got me hooked seeing it in the cinemas. Cause yeah, it's true. I literally was that person that I was, (laughs) you know, basically exposed to star Wars on a TV, but I saw the phantom menace. Uh, I believe it was the summer of 98. And it's funny, I I didn't walk away kind of going, oh, this didn't feel like a Star Wars movie or whatever. I just kind of walked away and was like, oh, okay, cool. Jar Jar Binks was a bit silly, but, <laughs> you know, I loved Darth Maul. I loved yeah. the music again. Oh, so good. Did oh, You were at Celebration God. this year? I was. Did you go to the David Collins panel about the I, music of the Phantom Menace? I didn't. I actually, if that was like Monday, I couldn't because I was I was flying back to the oh. UK. Um, but I, I yeah, remember if you that. You can find that on YouTube. You should, you should look oh, it up. It's incredible. Yeah, I, I definitely will. Um, so yeah, I. It's interesting with me the prequels. I um I have a I. I love them now as in terms of what they've revolutionized in visual effects, but story wise, I just, they're definitely kind of my, yeah, they're like the, the in-laws that you're like, yep, we're family, but (laughs) uh, not saying that about my in-laws. I'm just saying in-laws. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The way I I think of it. (laughs) Oh yeah. The, the, The way I think of it is, is there are so many great elements to the prequels. They're just maybe not necessarily stitched together the way we would have liked. Mm. that's the way i think about it because there's like the clone army and and like Django fett being involved and the mustafar and the padres like all that stuff is really really great and anakin's journey is still pretty pretty powerful towards the end of that trilogy just seeing what he goes through and it it really hits home it's it's why the first star wars movie to be rated pg-13 was because it was pretty brutal (laughs) when you're a a 10 year old kid watching that yeah but with with the Phantom Menace, it gave George Lucas a lot more flexibility in what he could do. It was still it was still being shot on film, which is important to note. Yes. Um, and you know he was at this point he was having nineteen hundred shots with vis- with visual effects, and even though a lot of people like to think that movie is very heavily digital effects, there's actually a lot of practical effects that were involved. They yes. did a lot of miniatures like Theed's Palace and the pod racing. There's one photo you can probably find online where you you have that wide shot of the pod race with all the racers lined up and there's a guy coming out of a tile on the floor setting them up. So mm. like that's pretty incredible to get to to make that big of a piece, a set piece and film it and and it's not digital that part at least. Yeah. And and they did have a pretty tough time too because they had all those pod racers built and they ha- the infamous storm that came through and wiped out a lot of the sets. Yeah, which is funny. I didn't even realize that until I just randomly I found like the behind the scenes. Uh, well, it's not even a documentary. It just felt like they kind of stitched together a whole bunch of like at home movies. But anyway, of the behind the scenes of the Phantom Menace, and yeah, I didn't realize that the storm it like it destroyed like two thirds of everything. It was just yeah. toast absolutely toast kind of thing i was just like oh crap didn't yeah. know that <laughs> which at that point yeah, at that point when you're george lucas and you, you're thinking back to the days of tunisia with with mark hamill and 
and Anthony Daniels having trouble with their costumes and, and Alec Guinness and the heat. You're like, why would I put myself through this if we just yeah. had all of our stuff destroyed? I don't, you know, it's not cost efficient. And at this point we can just do the shot, do the shots we need to digitally to the best of our ability and make it work somehow. Yeah. So, you know, we can, we can crap on the prequels for kind of going away from practical effects, but it was such a revolutionary technology at the time to really take advantage of it and see what George could do in the prequels that he couldn't do in the, the original trilogy, like make these yeah. massive landscapes and these massive races and these uh, huge environments, like inside these palace when they're fighting mall, like that's such a big open area. And it was just like visually stunning. I think, I think what, what helped was with the, you know, the original trilogy was so revolutionary. It started the technology. It started kind of that Renaissance. Then the prequels pushed it to its absolute limit to where it made people kind of go, okay, maybe this is a bit too much. That's a bit too digital. And again, maybe that's why I, I as like an, as a professional and as like an older viewer taking in the sequels, I think that's why I really like the sequels. Cause again, it's like, there's that balance. There's the mm -hmm. nice, you know, Renaissance of the original trilogy, but then the visual effects of the, you know, prequels, but there's that nice balance in the middle. So yeah, that's why, again, I'm with you. I definitely appreciate um, the prequels, because let's let's talk about Jar Jar Binks. Let's not yeah. talk about from a, like a character point of view, but from a visual effect point of view. What's quite fascinating is, obviously, bless him, Ahmed Best did all his stuff on set. He even had the you know the costume and everything because because of his character, you had to get the eye lines, what they call eye lines, basically the way the actors are looking, you know. Because if the character is supposed to be seven foot tall, but your actor is six foot tall, you add him digitally later. That's just your mm -hmm. eye lines aren't going to match up. So luckily they had that, but they it was almost kind of the same thing that like kind of happened in Jurassic Park where the, you know, the ILM people were like, hey, George, come here. Let's see. We've just basically replicated Ahmed Best's performance, but with a completely digital version of him. And it and actually I saw the side by sides in that that behind the scenes I actually found and actually the digital version was better. There's just, mm -hmm. which is, it's funny you wouldn't quite think that, but what I think what people have to understand now is because we're now so used to like today with motion capture and Andy Circus kind of revolutionizing all of that that uh, Jar Jar Binks and Ahmed Best all of that was hand animated. Every, you know, mm -hmm. there's no, oh, this is motion tracked or, you know, there's a different kind of motion capture on set than the what's in, in like the studios and things um, that it just that's kind of where I go. Oh, actually, that's quite fascinating that that's a completely digital character. And that's why your shot count went up to the thousands was because of all the uh, Jar Jar Binks shots and things. So that that was quite cool was having these. And you're right. It added a whole new aspect of aliens and things that we couldn't see before. You know, you had different sizes and things. It was no longer, okay, we have aliens that are all human sizes. Go. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And then... Um, and most importantly, of, speaking of aliens, you get the jacked fish in the, in yeah, the water. Yeah, you gotta love as, the jack, as they're calling it. <laughs> oh, I know. I love that. That cracks me up. It's always a bigger yeah. fish. Yes, exactly. There's always a bigger fish. Um, but also what kind of really kickstarted it again was when Attack of the Clones came out, I was a junior in high school. So I went from being like, cause yeah, these had like a three year 
gap between them. What was so fascinating about the second one was it was completely digital. Completely digital. First movie ever in Hollywood to be completely digital, too. Exactly. And it's it's quite fascinating because, again, that really jump-started post-production. And I feel like even things like, you know, external hard drives and, like, the red camera and all these tapelet... I'm going to drop some big industry terms here. Sorry. But, like, <laughs> tapeless media... I mean, heck, GoPros now. You know, everything is on an SD card. That wouldn't have been able to be happening if it wasn't for movies wanting to be made completely digital. Kind yeah. of like that's that's what's quite fascinating is it's it's almost like a knock on effect like NASA had a knock on effect with like you know the 50s 60s and 70s in terms of technology I feel maybe I'm giving them a bit too much credit but you know ILM and all the kind of you know Skywalker you know Lucasfilm kind of franchise you know companies really revolutionized technology as a ripple effect kind of thing so Attack of the Clones being a completely digital film again helped people like me who that's the first year 2002 i started teaching myself how to do editing because that was now a technology that was possible and they were using it in hollywood and it was exciting a very exciting time and but it's funny kind of now going back to it you're just like oh but it didn't have to be but you are correct it was one of those hey let's push it to its limit and try it all out kind of thing and one important distinction i think we should make just for the, the general audience, the difference between shooting on, on film and shooting on digital and Shannon, you can, you can hop in whenever, but when mm. with, with, fil- with filming or I was shooting on film. So you're restricted. It's more costly first off. And you're actually, you have a film reel that you're shooting. So you have to keep changing the film out when you're running out of a reel. So it makes it very, uh, it, it has almost too like more of a grainy look to it. And yes. something really significant to note was The Last Jedi and The Force Awakens were both shot in film. Correct. Uh, I believe 35 millimeter film. Yes, they were. So when they switch to digital, what that allows them to do is is before with film, when they're shooting, they don't really get to see everything until the film's developed. But with digital, they're going to have a small monitor there that they can keep looking at the shots as they're being filmed. And they can make the adjustments as needed. It allows them to shoot whatever amount of, of shots that they need without really any resource constraints. They don't have to right. keep changing out the film, so it's less expensive. They don't have to keep buying new film to to, to swap out. So yeah, it helps the, the entire the process. Because, yeah, the other thing is, too, like when you're on set, like I, I was on a, a – it's not quite the same because obviously it's a smaller caliber. I was on a 16-millimeter shoot when I was in film school. And, yeah, after you ran the reel, like you had to – put you know this hood over the camera and you had to check the gate and you had to make sure that it had to be dark i mean it was like a proper 20 30 minute process whereas with digital it was literally yep that tapes out cool swap it bish bash bosh as they say go kind of thing and it just literally took what was half an hour to kind of change reels to be 30 seconds and we'll hold that thought because again like you had mentioned the Last Jedi and The Force Awakens was shot on film. So remember, we are now back to this, okay, it's taking about 30 minutes to make sure everything's just so, and oh, by the way, you can't let light leak through because it will ruin the exposure of the, you know, the very fragile film and make sure it's in the canisters and things. So it's, yeah, that's, it's added its own interesting kind of spin. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's why it was just like, yeah, great, boom, go. And you're absolutely right as well. It was cheap. 
you know, I mean, it was, it wasn't like VHS tapes, but it it wasn't the mini DV. I forget which one. I think it might've been Betamax or something that, um, oh God, how to describe what a Betamax T, you know, it was smaller <laughs> than a VHS and thinner, but it wasn't, yeah, uh, I'm, yeah, probably not explaining it very well. But yeah, it was, um, it's a relic. Yeah, it was a very, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, in terms of like development and things, it was a much cheaper and faster uh, commodity to have on set. And yeah, it's quite fascinating. And again, because of that, we wouldn't have the red camera or GoPros or anything like that, tapeless media, as they kind of call it. So, right. Yeah. And George Lucas actually did an interview with American cinematographer back in, I'm blanking on the year, I actually didn't write that down, but it was about 10 years ago, maybe over 10 years ago with Ron Magid. And mm. uh, he had mentioned too that the digital filming not only helped it while they were filming, but even with the pre-visualization process. Yes. So it allowed George to actually piece shots together before he went out and filmed them. So instead of maybe the olden days, you get to set and you go, well, this shit, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Now he can actually plan those things beforehand and, oh, that's going to work. That's going to work. Now nah, that won't work. We're not going to waste the resources on that. And then when you get to the set, you're actually a lot more time sensitive and you're managing your time a lot better to the point where you're getting the shots that you need quick, easy, let's go, let's move on to the next thing. And what he said in the interview was, there's a lot of freedom and malleability that didn't exist before. It's easy to move things around in the frame to change various visual aspects of film of the film, which just wasn't possible before. It's the same kind of thing that you will find in still photography of used Photoshop. So yes. digital was, was huge at the time. And, and it, I think that's why, you know, even though Attack of the Clones, I consider it the weakest of the, yes, of the prequel movies. It's really almost the most innovative as well. It's crazy. Yes. It, yes. it really set, set well, the and foundation. Also kind of on a very specific visual effect kind of discipline. Um, it also started kind of what they, which is its own department in visual effects houses nowadays called crowd. And it, with that ending shot with all the clone troopers and things, having all those digital clones and being able to replicate them with an algorithm and things. Yeah. It, it started that as well. Was, I think it's one of the first like digital crowd shots. I, mm -hmm. I'm not a hundred percent. So people can kind of call me out on that, but it still was one of the first digital crowds. And then of course, kind of dovetailing into the uh, revenge of the Sith all the clone troopers were digi doubles, which is like mm -hmm. a term for like a digital double kind of thing. But they, yeah. um, they were all CG. Yeah. Control C, control V. Yeah. <laughs> Copy paste. Yeah, pretty much. I, I think, yeah, I, I, I did actually read that for the first time yesterday that all the clones were, were digital and even Commander Cody and Revenge yep. of the Sith. It was just him wearing a green suit, I believe. And they added on the armor after the fact, or, well, I guess reverse. They added his head to the armor. Um, I but, don't even think I, I could be wrong. I don't even think they did that. Like, I don't yeah. think they were physically on set. Like they were yeah. all <laughs> added in post-production. Like it's very they, possible. So Obi-Wan is just literally, you know, you and McGregor is just literally looking down. Yeah. At nobody on set. I'm not a hundred percent. I need to brush up on my, but I, I remembered like they wasn't even a guy in a green screen suit. Like it literally <laughs> was crazy. A completely. Yeah. Digital character. And something important now to tie back to what we were talking about with the Mandalorian earlier with, uh, sorry, my dogs are barking right now. <laughs> you can probably hear them. There's yeah. a bunch of bluffs downstairs going wild. So with, 
with the Mandalorian, they had a lot of shots where they had to have multiple stormtroopers involved. And rather than film them digitally or just add digital troopers in after the fact, John Favreau and Dave Filoni actually recruited members of the 501st. Yep. So again, even though the prequels allowed George to create these massive battles and space battles that he couldn't have achieved realistically with with you know stunt doubles and, and stormtrooper outfits now we're getting to the point where we're going back and saying hey instead of doing it digitally we're gonna make it practical yeah so it's it's just it's just kind of interesting how we're going back to the basics even and with again, all this technology it, it, available it, to us and again it's knowing when to use that technology like that actually isn't a very expensive technology to do nowadays you just have kind of a few because basically there's a term where you have what they call a hero character where that's like you have one that's a little bit more detailed and they will do a specific animation in the crowd but then the others aren't as like detailed because Mm -hmm. they literally just need to be replicated and like you basically will have like crowd where there'll be like five kind of you know, default animations offset and things like that and then they'll go okay now duplicate kind of thing but yeah, that, that's the great thing is like, yeah, it could, that could have been really easily done, you know, and it's really, especially in TV that's being done nowadays and you most things. And that think that was very cool. And also to kind of give Star Wars fans a chance to be part of history. Cause, and like he was saying in the panel, let me tell you those 501st, man, they knew how to stand. They had their, cause I mean, it's also, yeah. it makes sense. <laughs> you know, I know there's some yep. controversy, but like there's a reason why they are, the way they are and to be screen like oh what's the word um screen approved maybe or or um screen accurate yeah screen screen accurate accurate. and it pays off this is why you can't just you know buy something off the shelf and be a 501st but anyway i digress that was very cool i was very happy when i heard that and again, it's knowing that the, yes, it's, 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 I don't know why I keep going back to Jurassic Park, but it kind of fits. It's not a matter if you, you know, can, it's a matter if you should. And like <laughs> that kind of thing. But sorry, it's not a matter if you could, it's a matter if you should. And yeah. they didn't have. Great and that's quote. really cool. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And seeing seeing that shot with Favreau, Filoni, and the entire 501st, they were just so happy. You could oh, just see, gosh, they yes. were like smile from ear to ear. The fact that this is finally, you know, this crazy passion of yours that other people have probably teased you about your whole life. And you're going, exactly. oh, look at me. I'm on screen now, like in a TV, Star Wars TV show, live action. Like, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, and also that he said the professionalism that came with yeah. them. Like, yeah, they were in character like that. And yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and just uh, just kind of another quote to really hit home the, the impact of digital versus film. Uh, George Lucas said, I didn't want to have to use film. Film ultimately is very cumbersome. It's like working with the lights out. You can't see the work until the next day. Being able to look at what you're doing while you're doing it without having to run to the lab or because you want to break down the setup and all that makes high def a much more efficient way of shooting visual effects. Uh, So another important aspect of that too is with the miniatures that they built for the prequels now they actually had to put a lot more detail into them because the Mm -hmm. high definition cameras were picking up a lot more than before so in the original trilogy you could maybe get away with a few things being not as up to par as you'd like them to be because the quality of the film would mask it whereas now high def's capturing everything and people always joke about you know their faces on high def like oh you're gonna see all my pores and everything and it's true like the high def's gonna pick up everything 
So they had to they had to put a lot more time into that. The lighting is also super important in filmmaking. Yes. And it's 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 so crucial, I think. I think it's another reason why the miniatures really stand out is because the way the light interacts with a real live miniature is a lot different than you can sometimes replicate with Correct. digital effects. Correct. So I think that's why the original trilogy too has such great authenticity to it is because a lot of it is practical. Whereas maybe the the prequel trilogy, the, the lights not interacting with the objects in the environment as much as it could. Yes. Um, so like, for instance, I know they're saying the, the Geonos, the Geonosin arena was a 35 to 40 foot miniature and they the amount of light that they had to use they had to increase the voltage a ton which Mm -hmm. was making the set so hot but because the high how the high def camera shot they had to do it that way because they needed to pick up you know certain exposures and stuff like that with with the filming It's, it's pretty incredible what the what attack of the clones did uh shannon what do you what would you say looking at the the prequel trilogy in general what do you, what would you say if you had to summarize what's its lasting impact on on Star Wars overall before we went into a 10 year hiatus um oh and Star Wars cuz i was going to say even, in, yeah even in terms of wide in, too, i'll yeah. say in terms of visual effects it created kind of new departments so you had crowd you had your 3d map painting it, it kind of created new disciplines but in terms of star wars i think it really i think it opened it it made oh it's tricky because it made the universe feel big but it also made it feel small because everything was tied to it like having boba fett's dad be the leader of the clones just made the universe seem so much smaller but at the same time we saw the planets like Camino, which that was so cool that it was like, wow, this is a rainy ocean planet. We've never seen that. We wouldn't have been able to see that in, you know, the seventies and eighties, like, because the technology just wasn't there, you know, seeing Mustafar just, right. it just wouldn't have happened in the seventies and eighties, but we could do it in the, you know, 2005. So I, I think it, it worlds in terms of worlds, it really showed us, new new worlds and um star wars that we couldn't see where we pretty much had a desert a forest you know a frozen tundra yeah that was that was the original trilogy oh and a swamp those were <laughs> those were you know because that's kind right. of what we could do visually but then throw in the digital kind of revolution yeah of course you can have a lava planet why not that's yeah. i think the positive spin i can put kind of on the prequels that's not touching on like story or <laughs> yeah anything like that and even the mustafar scenes a lot of that if you watch the revenge of the sith extras they use real real footage of volcanoes and integrated that with the yes. the visual effects too so s- still much of it is kind of practical in a way and in, in the terms of they're using real footage um yeah, I really think of the prequels as a passion project by George, yes. even though the story is not necessarily the most cohesive. He, I think of him almost as just a kid in a candy shop where it's mm. like, think about the think about what he had to go through making the originals and the limitations and technology yeah. that he he had, which we'll talk about this at our, and, um, more in the final portion of this episode. But it's, it's at the point now where he's like, I have all this stuff like. This is what I envisioned when I originally had Obi-Wan say, I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. Like, this yeah. is what I was imagining in my head in the 70s, but it was just not possible. And I almost think that's a reason he might have started 
the timeline where he did because he knew someday he would want to revisit when the technology got better revisit those those clone wars and and really stick to his his true vision of it so um you know prequels are 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 great we just kind of have to respect them for what they are it's the creator's vision and um, you can definitely have your problems with it if you want, but it's a lot of fun at the end of the day. It's 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 also makes for a really good drinking game if you watch The Phantom Menace. Uh, every time Jar Jar says Misa, oh, um, God. you know, yeah. I'm so not a big a drinker. Time. I'd be I'd be drunk after like scene two. <laughs> um, I, yeah, you know I've, I've done it is, once with my friends. <laughs> um, you know what I think it is? I thought about this the other day with the prequels. And I think this is why everyone is just so on a knife's edge with the sequel trilogy. You know, when the original trilogy came out, we had no idea what was going to happen next. You know, oh my God, is Han Solo going to live? Is he dead? Blah, 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 blah. With the prequel trilogy, the minute you see little Anakin Skywalker, you know he is going to become Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. You know the end game. The only what but what was ex- what kind of was exciting about the prequels was okay how does this end game happen but that's why I think also I just couldn't get behind the Padme you know Anakin love story because there was no stakes there was no oh are they aren't they like you know everyone has their opinions on Raylo that's fine I'm kind of a Raylo light I don't see it as like a love thing I see it more as like just kind of a balance and a connection but anyway but the reason why that is so prominent is because there's that whole ooh aren't they aren't they that you know what I mean whereas in like mm-hmm. with the prequel trilogies you're just kind of like oh yeah of course they're gonna fall in love because there's gonna have to be twins you, you, does that make sense like there yeah, just definitely. wasn't a lot there's so much stake. there's so much unknown now where it's it's it causes a lot more of a dialogue. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm like, Oh God, who's going to survive? Is Poe going to survive? Is Ray going to survive? I mean, it's yeah, there's so Poe better survive. I can't live oh, with myself if that doesn't happen. <laughs> there's so <laughs> much at stake. And I think that's why yeah. we are so, I mean, heck me who started a podcast. Like I never intended to be a star Wars content creator. It literally just kind of happened on accident, mm-hmm. but it's because it's that, Oh my God, it's so exciting. And it's the first time in a, in my remembrance of, you know, and I'm 35 that it's like, Oh my God, what is going to happen next? And it's exciting, but obviously it's very on a knife's edge as well. <laughs> yeah. I, speaking of, of the sequel trilogy and just beyond, we're really going to move into that now to our second to last part. But with the sequel trilogy, a lot of what I think hyped up the force awakens was JJ's emphasis on one going back to film like we mentioned previously and yep. also the back to the basics of visual effects. So I remember I don't know the character's name. I think it was Babaju. It was that guy with the uh he was a really small alien. He had this giant stack of items as a backpack. Yes. Walking around the Jakku desert and that was like one of the first practical effects that we saw yes, that he was- showcased. Yeah, because it was for like, a, oh, what's the charity? They, Force oh, for Force change. for Change. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So he did that and he did the video with the X-Wing. Those were the first things we ever saw of Force exactly. Awakens. And, and there was a Millennium Falcon one as well at one point. So people, that is just, that was the most hyped movie of, of all time. I would argue like one of the most hyped movies having such a long period of time without Star Wars. And they've just continued to break, break new ground in, in visual effects so uh, there's a few that I, I'd like to talk talk about and make sure that you you know you let me know if there's any off the top of your mind that we might not 
mm-hmm. get to. One of the one of the ones that I like the most personally is maybe not the best one, but the one I like the most is the flying rig for the Falcon that they've developed with the wraparound screen. Yes, like they that did for Solo. Shows, yeah, so they I, I don't know if they use that technology up in... Actually, they used it for Rogue One as well. I think that's where it was first used, and then they used it for Solo. So um, I actually went to the Rob Brito... Uh, I think that's how you say his name, Rob Bredo. He's the, the head of, of ILM now, and he hosted a panel at Celebration of the making of Solo, and he, he was saying something that was so special about having that, that LED screen wrapping around and being able to put hyperspace up there, you're going to get natural light inside Correct. the cockpit. Again, we, we talked about this a little earlier, is like how important lighting is in a film to its authenticity and the fact that they can zoom in on Alden Ehrenreich's eye and you're, when the, the hyperspace that you're seeing in his eye is real. It's, yeah. it's literally there in front of him. It's not just a digital effect that they're adding in after the fact. So again, it's, it's kind of thinking thinking uh thinking smarter not harder sort of deal they're really figuring out better ways to get better lighting that you don't have to add in post-production you're getting all of that while you're filming it and it's funny because if you think about it it's kind of using an old school technique but with a new school twist on it because you know back in the day like for like the birds all the alfred alfred all the alfred hitch oh my god sorry (laughs) take three all the alfred hitchcock films you know you kind of had like a background playing in there and you kind of had the uh, the illusion of movement mm-hmm. that's pretty much what's doing it now but it's just a 10 times better twist because you're right lighting is by far lighting and texturing is some of the biggest tells for visual effects is if you don't get those lighting and because lighting passes oh my gosh there's so many if you don't get those right even someone who's not with a trained eye will kind of go oh that looked kind of funny um and also you got a better performance from the actors so i I, i'm not quite sure how true this is but i can kind of gauge just from the performance when they turn the lights back on and that eye opens like when it cuts back to them on the extreme wide going I think that's a genuine reaction because they were able to do that. Just like I've heard in rumors that shot of Alden, the first time the Millennium Falcon goes into, into hyperspace and he's in the sitting in the back kind of smiling. I I've heard rumors. That's like one of the first takes that they hadn't seen it actually happen. So that smile on Alden's face is real. So that's the other thing from an actor's point of view, you get a great performance as well kind of thing yeah exactly and rob mentioned that in the panel he might actually mention that that was one of the first takes they did to get the natural reaction but they had he had said that phoebe waller bridge and, and donald glover when they first did it they started screaming and you can actually <laughs> hear it in the footage and they're like can oh you? my god yeah or not not in the footage for the film but like oh. um i think they cut it out but like the the take that they used they were actually screaming um and it's just like so funny like just get like you said to get your actors involved and really committed behind the story that's one way to do it truly going into hyperspace (laughs) was probably the coolest moment you know you're an adult you know it's not real but we pressed this lever and then the stars came and we both just went "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) for a second a second i really believed i was going into hyperspace one other thing I want to touch on with the, the the wraparound screen, it wasn't just used for hyperspace. They also used it for the Dolomites that they was the outs, uh, the background for Dryden Voss's ship. 
So okay, that's another yeah. instance where the lighting coming in from the, the LED screen into his set on the ship was all real lighting as well. Like the light coming in against Chewbacca's face, like that's all real. And they, they, they got that footage through the process of, of photo modeling, which basically they, they went around the Dolomites in a helicopter and I think they did 120 shots over five days with a, an Alexa 65 camera. For some of you, you may know what that means. I don't. <laughs> and <laughs> and so they they took all these these shots that they got, kind of pieced them together and 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 used them for the train heist and Dryden Voss's ship and all these other things. And it was it was pretty incredible. Like you know, making these low passes through the mountains to get the shots that they need and getting these large aerial shots so that they could use natural lighting and not just, again, do like a, a digital CG world around them. Yeah, I think that's becoming quite prominent because actually um, I I worked on uh, the Windows briefly for Merger on the Orient Express, and it was oh, the same wow. thing. Like my It was to get this footage to be on proper, you know, LED or, you know, LCD screens so that the windows weren't just green screen, like, so same thing. It's, it's all the lighting thing and, you know, making sure you get that illusion of movement. So I think that is definitely something that's becoming more prominent in Hollywood now is it's like, okay, let's not just green screen it. Let's get it to where it's an actual reaction on things. So that's, I, I guess I didn't think about the, the, you said the Dolomites? The... Yeah, it's in uh, Italy. Oh, cool. Yeah, That's really so that cool. was one of the things he talked about. So the the photo modeling was actually them building a 3D computer model of the Dolomites by taking a ton of different photos, and they built a a, a very like precise uh, texture of the Dolomites that they could use for different shots or even to map out those 120 shots that they needed to take, like almost creating like a 3D map of being like, okay, here's where we're going to go for this shot. Here's where we're going to go for that shot. Oh, I that, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a can, digital environment. Yeah. It's like a digital set. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. That's, so that allowed them to the pre-plan. Yes, that's a very prominent um, way that they do things. Some of the coolest like visual effect breakdown reels, like I think there was a great one for the first Guardians of the Galaxy um, and another one where it's like you can see yep like yep this is and they actually did mm -hmm. it for wonder woman as well the um the ending battle in wonder woman that was all created digitally and ex exactly what you're describing that you're like yep so from here that camera that was this shot kind of thing and it was like i mean obviously it was still shot on set as well but they were able to mirror it perfectly and so that's that's quite cool that they did that for that that doesn't surprise me but that's that's really cool yeah. that, that kind of how they did that one so that's really cool and that knowledge comes from just me going to the panel, but also there's a making solo book, which is from ILM. So especially you, Shannon, I think you might, if you can rent it from the library or, yeah. or, or find a, a copy of it, it is so amazing. It's just one of those books that you could flip through on a Sunday morning, uh, and just have such a blast with, and it's as quality as a behind the scenes video on a DVD. So really definitely fun. recommend that book. And a few other effects we could talk about too. Uh, just a little smaller effect, I guess, is lightsaber. This is more of a practical effect, but it affects the amount of, of digital and visual effects that they have to add in after the fact. But another instance of lighting being so important. So back in the old days, we had the rotoscoping technique yep. of the original trilogy where they just had a pole and they would manually trace the lightsaber onto that pole frame by frame. Now the actors of, of, of Boyega and, and Ridley and Driver, they're using... Uh, they're using a lightsaber, but instead of just a metal pole, it's like a, a more like fluorescent 
kind of like the FX lightsabers that you yeah, can buy nowadays. Heavy. Yeah. Yeah. So they heavy. still keep that. They still keep that weight to give the actors the feeling of like, it's not just like a really light thing you can swing around. It makes all of their moves even more impactful and you can see the strain on their bodies while they're fighting. Exactly. Um, but the, the lighting of the lightsaber, it's, it's fully lit up. So like that scene where boy, John Boyega has the lightsaber against Kylo Ren's and he's up against the tree. Yeah. The lighting on his face is actually from the saber that he's using on set. There's like, that's mostly not digital. It's, it's really the lighting that he had. So yeah. I think that's such a just cool addition a cool way to think about it from from JJ and the team's perspective. And again, I think that just hits on the lighting aspect of filming. Well, and it's interesting that you said that because I I never really thought about that. We've never had a nighttime lightsaber fight because we couldn't. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. we can because even in the prequels, and I think this is why I'm not a big fan of the prequel lightsaber battles because those we you could see them like the way Hayden and you know you and those were very thin rods and man pop 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 pop. You know, they were right. very fast, whereas, yeah, they're, these are heavier, bulkier, they're lit. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. I, I never thought about that. It was, we've never had a nighttime lightsaber battle because we, the technology wasn't there, you know. Right. But I guess, I guess I never noticed it the first time because it didn't seem like, oh, okay, here we are flexing our muscles of, you know, here's a cool <laughs> thing you've never seen before. But no, that's a really good spot. I never thought about that. And even, I guess you could con- maybe consider the Death Star fight between Luke and Vader as nighttime, maybe. But even then, thinking about those shots during that fight, you don't really see much lighting on the faces. You don't really see the reflection of the lightsaber invader's uh, costume. You don't see the the green on Luke's face. And I think that's an effect that you would have gotten with the, with the lightsaber technology that they're using now. Yeah. So just another way to make those fights more emotional and more about the story rather than the acrobatics of it. And I think that's the reason I personally like the sequel trilogy fighting a lot. It it just feels very more, more story focused. Yes. Some other interesting things that came from the, the galactic innovations panel at the Academy, they did mention for rogue one, the star destroyers that they use were actually scanned model pieces of the original star Wars or star destroyer, pieces that were used in the original star wars oh, movie nice. so they, they they took all the original pieces scanned them together made the star destroyers from scrap and then throw them on the film so the ones that you're seeing are like truly to the like they're truly legitimate you know they're not just digital models that they created from scratch they're like using the building blocks of what what made those original star destroyers we see so special so when you see that star destroyer come out of the death star shadow that's the the real model you're seeing that has to be down to like sometimes Gareth Edwards or, you know, JJ or Ryan, because now that's the other thing interesting about the sequel trilogy. You now have people who grew up with Star Wars, so they have a love and also a wanting to tie in the old with the new. I didn't mm-hmm. know that. That's quite fascinating. And I think, I mean, I knew about the whole using unused footage for, I think, like Red Leader or something like that. Yeah. And, because I know where to look, I can slightly tell that it's the where when it's been added because it's still slightly aged different. But for the most, but that's just the trained eye thing. But um, so using the models to the original models, one is all also kind of a way to tie in because that's that was very difficult. How do you tie something from 2016 that you could, if you were playing them in order, would literally then go into 1977? Like that's a tall order and that's that's quite cool i didn't know that about the models yeah. so 
I think they did the same thing for the X-Wings and the, the Y-Wings as well. That makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. The battles and things. That makes a lot of sense. Because unfortunately, like, and when I think of Rogue One, I think of the two, you know, Tarkin and Leia. And I, when I say this, I mean this with the utmost respect to anybody who worked on them. It just, they, they just, they just looked a bit weird. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Uncanny I- Valley. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, that that term going around on Canny Valley and things like that. Because I guess also I was a bit spoiled, you know, I worked on projects of the the Arnold Schwarzenegger in Genesis. And um, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler for Blade Runner 2049, if you haven't seen it, but I That's hope so I, I had. The Rachel, like, those are two digital digital doubles that like I feel worked a little bit better. Maybe I'm a bit biased. And I, again, I mean, no disrespect to anybody that worked on them. It's just, yeah. And it's funny as I, this is kind of in the whole tall tale urban legend. I don't know how true this is, but apparently Tarkin was originally supposed to just be a reflection in rogue one. And then somebody saw that and was like, Oh, we should bring them back. Make it happen, ILM. Again, mm-hmm. that is the rumor. I am not saying that is fact. That could be one of those urban legends. People could be like, nope, yeah. channels were completely wrong. That is fair. I'll own that. But it, it it makes sense because, again, it's that whole, well, the technology's there. Go kind of thing. But right. um, yeah, so, I, so it is cool to hear kind of a positive, not that that's not a positive visual effect thing, but... Yeah, that it, it's definitely something that's debated at a lot of the round tables, but amongst visual effect people are digital doubles and what works, what doesn't, and the Rogue One have been brought up quite a bit. Yeah, that is an important visual effect to bring up now, too, with with Tarkin and Leia. Tarkin played by by Guy Henry. I was I was looking into uh sort of how the motion capture works, which has been prominently used for the sequels and sequel movies. With you know Maz and and Snoke especially with Andy Serkis, which the yep. fact that Andy Serkis finally weaselled his way into a Star Wars movie <laughs> was so great because <laughs> I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, so I was like, yes, get him in there. Yes. Um. So I was reading and and it says basically for a motion capture, they the, the actor gets scanned twice, once in a complex light stage to figure out how their skin reacts under yep. light, and then the second is a Medusa rig, which is actually I believe from Disney Research in Zurich. And I remember one of the first images I saw of of Andy Serkis. And I think it was maybe even in the Vanity Fair um, photo shoot by Annie Leibovitz in in 2015 was Andy Serkis in a Medusa rig. It's it has like kind of like that tannish, uh, almost like tannish pillars around him with lights shining right on him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm sure you could look it up. I might try to find it and post it on the on Twitter. But so yeah, basically uh, that's where you kind of get the 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 actual actor and their and their face and everything and then they put the head rig on you with the four different cameras and the dots and capturing every slight movement of your skin combining it with those scans that they took of you and the the Tarkin one especially is really is pretty unique because I didn't know this but apparently they actually used a life cast of of Peter Cushing Mm. that they just happened to find from a, a 1984 movie called Top Secret it's when he had like this really his character had a really weird, weird big eye. So they had to get a face cast of him to then develop that 
oh, character's um, facial mask that he put on. So they just happen to find it and they scan that that life cast of Peter Cushing. So it's it's pretty realistic in, in the sense that they're getting the most accurate reading of his face that of they course. can. Of course, yeah. Well, yes. Um, and then st- stitching it over Guy Henry's performance to make sure that they're getting the correct uh, mannerisms of Tarkin yes. and Peter Cushing's performance. I mean, that, I mean, and that was for what it was, it, it, it was great because also to kind of step that up, if you think about it now, Snoke was a bit different because he's, I guess, an, I'm pretty sure an alien, but his digital double, but I guess he was more of a digital character. He wasn't like based on a, a something we'd seen is brilliant. I mean, to the point he's got little stubbles on his chin and like, yeah, between That's so the, cool, just between the year of those two films, the technology and texturing and lighting was leaps and bounds, you know? So it, the thing about visual effects, even within own companies, the technology is constantly evolving. Um, you know, like for example, the cats on jungle book looked amazing, but now put them next to the cats for the lion King look awful but they're not actually awful if that makes sense so it's just one of those technology just keeps changing so fast so i know i'm saying oh the digital doubles of rogue one but then you put them next to snoke snoke is amazing and it's the Mm -hmm. same thing it's the exact same thing and so that's just what's fascinating about technology and how fast in just the span of a year things change yeah i with with Tarkin and, and Leia too, I know some people who maybe don't have such an eye for visual effects. Like my mom, for instance, was like, "That's Peter Cushing," and I'm like, "No, it's not." <laughs> She's like, "What?" I'm like, "Well, one, he's dead, mom." So well, I get, my get own brother. Times. My own brother was yeah. like, "Oh, I didn't realize the guy that was a lot." I was like, "No, Patrick, yeah. he's been dead for like 20 years or something." Like, <laughs> yeah. So it, it can be easy to to definitely to to criticize it or kind of feel like it's a little bit uncanny for for those of us who really have an eye for that kind of stuff. But when you think about just the risk itself that they took, I think it's pretty pretty great. And it's just another instance uh, of thinking back to ILM's inception. They they continue to to break Absolutely. boundaries. If it doesn't work, fine. Like if the Dijkstra flex didn't work, you know, we tried. We at least tried it out. And they're clearly not, you know, doing the exact technique for, for Leia in episode nine, but they're doing something very similar to it where they're using unused footage and, and a little bit of, of digital recreation to some degree, um, but still keeping yeah, but the core of, I guess, of her character's performance. Yeah, I guess for that one, because um, I've been quite interested in that. And I've, I've been reading kind of the various reports that come out and things. And um, yeah. that one, though, it makes sense. It's more of a traditional um compositing kind of technique so mm-hmm. i almost look at it like kind of like digital makeup that it's not going to be uh, i think it's really tricky because when you say digital that has such a broad term now because i remember some other places right. were kind of covering it and they were like oh well then they kind of contradicted themselves i'm like no, not quite but again i have to understand i i'm obviously kind of I know how things are phrased and know what it means. And it's like, oh, you know, not quite, but right. they definitely, I don't feel now this is pure speculation. So we're speculation nation right now. I don't feel they're going <laughs> to do a complete digital double. I don't even think they're going to do like a digital double for the bottom part of the, per, you know, the performance. The only thing they might make one is just because they want to change the clothing on her. 
Or, yeah. and I think obviously like for the reactions, so like, you know how we saw in the trailer, Daisy hugging someone, she's hugging a real person. So that yeah. obviously is a body stand in. So we're talking some old school kind of techniques here, but uh, yeah, I think it's just a simple compositing technique to where they're taking the background out, completely replacing it with something different. They're keeping basically the facial performance. Cause then again, it's, it's the eyes. So the eyes is what kind of makes the uncanny Valley. Well, if you already have the wonderful, you know, performance from Carrie Fisher, you don't need to do anything, but you may need to slightly yeah. add a few wrinkles or something to it. So yes, you're kind of digitally fixing her, but it's more like makeup. You are not right. doing a digital double like that was in Rogue One, if that makes sense. That's my speculation on it. I don't know anything, <laughs> 100%, but yeah. I definitely agree with you. I think that's more of what I meant as well. It's, it's, I think you put it, you did put it a great way in terms of just makeup. Yeah. They're, they're still using the performance of Carrie. It's just based on the scene, they might have to change a few things. Cause like, why is she wearing the same outfit as force awakens? You know? Well, I mean, so that's something so... they might have to change. Sorry to interrupt. It, it no, also, she also looked very different just in terms of like her build and her health between yeah. the force awakens and the last Jedi too, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So there's, there's some things that kind of need to make her kind of tie in, but I I'm, Oh God, I'm waiting for those scenes with like, you know, hell breath. Like I have some theories. Um, I think like every, you know, every film so far, one of the kind of original, you know, Trinity has had a moment in the cockpit. Han Solo had a moment. Luke had a moment. I think Leia has a moment. And I think that's where we see her holding the medal. And I think that uh, might be yeah. again, guys, I uh, promise you, this is all guessing. Heartbreak. So, yeah. This is all guessing. I don't know anything, but, um, I think that would be great to where it's like she has a moment and then mm -hmm. that could be easily one of those scenes where her and Ray talk and you, you something like that again, completely speculation there, but yeah, I have yeah. to be careful cause I'm worried because I like, I work in the industry. I don't want people to think like, I'm, I know something is like, no, no, no. <laughs> so, so thinking about we've, we've went over a lot. I we went from ILM's inception to the prequel trilogy, the innovations that were made there filming on digital and even the sequel trilogy just continuing to break boundaries or think of new innovative ways to have elements of a film interact with the actors and while also continuing to uh, make those digital elements even more realistic and it's just pretty incredible what ILM's been able to do and I think just thinking back to the original quote from Richard Edlunds on the Galactic Innovations panel saying the people who put the magic into industrial light and magic. So that's really the core of what the company yeah. represents. T to wrap it up and tie one little maybe nice bow on this this whole conversation, I think, is, is just a, a couple quick talking points here. The the pull between um, practical and like CGI. Now, I know we're, we, we explicitly stated the difference between special effects and, and visual effects. Do, does practical effects still fall under special effects since it's I still... I believe so. Um, okay. Because, yeah, I guess, like, again, like, I, I think, yeah. Okay. Because there's special effect makeup is another kind of sub category. Right. So I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So one one quote I want to, uh, to, to mention from John Dykstra, who created the Dykstra Flex, he was speaking with CNET, the author of the article, wrote... He describes pre-digital techniques as being like a handwritten letter and CGI like an email. 
And then John Dykstra actually said, people tend to be a little more thoughtful about time and effort they put into the creation of that letter. And he adds that the, he tires of seeing the Empire State Building blown up and other city smashing damage. Then John Dykstra says, with the advent of digital imaging and literally the ability to do anything, you end up with an embarrassment of riches. So looking at this quote, I definitely think Dykstra is one of those old school guys who really truly appreciates the the use of visual effects or uh, sorry, like practical special effects in a day and age where we get a lot of of superhero movies that are just bombarding us with visual effects. The one I think of the most that, I, I kind of get turned off by is Man of Steel at the very end oh, of the yes. fight with Zod, Zod. Yes. And everything's just getting destroyed. And it's like, at what point does that impress the audience? Like, I think I got over it after like maybe a few minutes and I was like, okay, this battle could well, be Well, it almost over became farcical. Like, yeah. People were just, I mean, I know like, like, oh, uh, a great YouTube channel, um, how it should have ended was taking the piss out of it where they were just like, hang on a second like it and i remember actually some some of the fellas in the kit room at one of the the jobs i was working at at the time was just like it's ridiculous like all the buildings he breaks and things so yeah it's it's true that it's you start losing a sense of reality because you can kind of thing yeah embarrassment of riches is such a as a unique way to put it yeah so we we, you mentioned earlier balance is is the key word the buzzword here with (laughs) with with effects so from your perspective what is the balance between the two what is that happy medium between practical and uh, digital i'm gonna be shameless here and be very vague but watch dark crystal on august 30th that will be your best explanation. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not quite Star Wars related, but it's yeah. it's it's a great kind of yeah. old and new, and you can't see the line of the old and new. Yeah. Right? You can't see the line between the practical and the visual. What you say about the line between the two, like practical and digital, I that is... The key, I, if you can have the audience not notice where that line is, then you've created a successful film. Yeah, that's what the sequel trilogy does so well I because so. they're taking so many elements of the original trilogy, like shooting on location and film, shooting on film, and using more practical effects like Babaju and the the monster or the alien that's drinking water with Finn, like those sorts of oh, things. Oh, the hop of boar or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so once you start to blend, once you start to blend so many things together, and you you have a film where there's a, a 50-50 of each, that's where you don't notice the line. I, the the prequel trilogy. Oh, they I jumped think, over that line like three yeah. times. <laughs> Right, where that's where it kind of feels a little iffy, and, and even some of the clone troopers now thinking about it. Whenever I watch that scene, the scenes with Commander Cody, it kind of feels a little off to me yeah. because I can tell his body's digital. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing where in the Mandalorian we're gonna get stormtroopers that are five hundred first members. They're real, and it's gonna bring so much more authenticity it to really it. Is. Like you said, they could have easily made a program to replicate the stormtroopers. But they're going for something that feels real and something that feels like a used universe, which is hearkening back to what George's original intentions were for the original trilogy. So it's important, to, in my opinion, to have 
more practical than digital, but still have a fair share of digital because you have to make use of the technology and budgetary constraints are also important <laughs> to yeah. adhere to. Yeah. Uh, one other thing even too, just speaking more about visual effects in Star Wars, obviously the original trilogy has gone through its fair share of additions <laughs> and I was watching a, a featurette from when the special editions were released and Rick McCollum was talking about George, how he... In 1977, his imagination was so limited and in, in, in the, in the, you know, he couldn't get the dynamic shots that he really wanted to achieve. I mean, most um, re-releases of films are director's cuts, and usually they're about scenes that have been pulled out by the studio if the studio's forced the director to take out. But these aren't. This is only about an artist going back to do a film and make it in the way in which he originally envisioned it. That makes me think again of our discussion on the prequel trilogy, even though, you know, we might have our problems with it. It was truly like the kid in the candy store yeah. for George, because in his own way, he was going back to the the way he originally envisioned Star Wars. And that's why he shot the prequels the way he did. And sure, you know, there's some additions to the original trilogy that aren't great, like the crate dragon scream. I personally don't like or Oof. Vader shouting no before he throws the emperor. I yes. Think is a really oh. bad addition. <laughs> Probably the worst addition because the silence of Vader in that film when he's oh. thinking and, and making the turn back to the light is the most important thing. But but when you think about the dogfights and the Death Star, like those are really cool additions, I think. And that and again, those are bringing back to some of the storyboards he originally created, but he just could not physically shoot. Mm. Do, you, do you think, you know, it's important for George Lucas to really go back to that vision, even though we don't agree necessarily with all of the additions of the special trilogy? Do you think it's still really about the artist and and what they should we really respect that as fans i i guess i feel i mean i, I don't feel like i sh i'm one to kind of say what a fan should feel i feel mm -hmm. it has its place because i feel like the special editions was kind of george kind of cracking the knuckles before playing the keys of getting things ready for the prequel trilogy it was kind of like okay what can i kind of do and kind mm -hmm. of like a trial and error, you know, like one thing that I wish could just go is that singing scene in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> but that yeah. was the first time we kind of saw a digital alien that wasn't a humanoid size. So that was kind of that test. I guess I, I don't know. Maybe I right. I view things nowadays. Um, there's um, a, a, a industry term, maybe not just for the film industry and visual effects, but called proof of concept, where you kind of try something and then you kind of go, eh, okay, that, that worked. Eh, okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, I get it as an artist, like when I, you know, make reels or, you know, edit shows or things like that. Sometimes I go, I wish I could go back and fix that and things like that. So to have that ability, that's great. But I guess it's kind of knowing when to also leave it alone because it's also could be just like a, a great painting you can also after a while like especially like an oil painting if you keep painting you start muddling the colors and i think especially like with the blu-ray editions that came out where i believe that's when they added the vader saying no because i don't think that mm -hmm. was in the original yeah that was when it was added yep those kind of things that i just felt like was not necessary adding the rock yeah. in front of r2d2 like, <laughs> that was not necessary there were right. definitely some things 
not necessary. That could adjust. You, you're now just doing it because you can, or that's what it felt mm-hmm. like to me. So I think it has its place. I don't mind it. Um, I completely understand fans who want to see the uncut non special editions. I do think it's also kind of cool. Best spin, especially I think is better in the special editions because Absolutely. you had more of the windows and the color, big color difference. Cause it has the lovely orange hues in it now than it did in the original version. So I guess, again, it's, it's a time and place and balance kind of thing. So I, I don't feel I should tell a fan how to accept it, but I, yeah. that's how I accept it. It's like, I view it as that it was used as a proof of concept. So George knew, okay, this is what the technology can do. So I can now, do it and innovate it for my prequels. I completely agree with you. I think you put it in such a, a great way. And again, it's it's truly his vision and he wanted to try some new things out and he's totally entitled to that. And it's all about balance. Like we said, much like the force, <laughs> yes. the balance between changing things or making them digital. It's all very important in the, in the visual effects uh, industry and, and, and just, summarizing everything up ilm's truly been a pioneer of that and george lucas's imagination enabled a lot of those new technologies to be created because he wanted to push the boundaries and he wanted to see what we could do different than what's been done before and i think when when i when i look at star wars that's that's truly what i think Mm. connects with most people is 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 space itself is exploratory and the vision of star wars and making it was also very exploratory so the the two kind of go hand in hand yes so is there anything else that you wanted to add before we, we wrap up this this episode on the visual effects? No, I, I think we pretty much covered everything. Perfect. All right. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for coming on episode nine. I had a lot of fun discussing discussing this topic, and it's it's definitely a good one to look at. And we, we always have to make sure that we're not only appreciating the story and the actors within Star Wars, but the imaginary uh, or the imaginative people behind the scenes who are making it all happen the artists the animators the digital effects people and the the cinematographers all those people are, are making the film too oh yeah so it's, it's very important that we we acknowledge their work acknowledge the impacts that they've had on the industry absolutely and recognize what star wars has done beyond just uh just a storytelling element of things so once again uh you can find shannon at uh, what what was your Twitter handle again? It's um from Galaxy's Edge on Twitter and then on Instagram and basically all the other uh, social media platforms. It's uh, postcards from the Galaxy's Edge, and um, I'm also the the podcast can be fo- found on Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and a couple other different ones. And I also sometimes will do video episodes on the a YouTube channel as well, which is pretty much just YouTube and then it's just Shannon with two. Moran. Perfect. And once again, you can find me on Twitter at Brad underscore Whipple, and you can find the podcast at Friends of Force. You can listen on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. We also just launched our website, so go check that out. The link is in my Twitter. 
And Shannon, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank I really you. appreciate it. Would love to have you back again Absolutely. as a friend of the force. You're always welcome on thank the podcast. <laughs> and uh, you're one of our founding friends of the force here too, which is awesome. Sweet. So awesome. Once again, <laughs> it's a it's a privilege. Trust me. It'll it you'll get a button someday. It'll happen. Yes. <laughs> so once again, thank you all for listening. We're all one with the force. We are all friends of the force. And until next time, may the force be with you. Thank you.